Amen. Well, hey, church, good morning. Um, before I pray for us, I, I couldn't help but to think about something while we were singing. Um, man, Christ rescued me when I was 18 years old. I had lived a life so far from God and so far from Christ, totally undeserving. And, and what's crazy about this pulpit, okay, so just bear with me for a second. Someone in our church built this pulpit for us, for this church plant. But we, we put it in a closet and take it out and put it up and take it out, you know, every Sunday. So inevitably what happens is it, it falls and it gets banged up and sometimes it gets scuffed up and there's some scuffs on it. And as I was preaching in the first service, it just, I don't know, just remind, it just ministered to me to touch a pulpit that isn't perfect. To be reminded that this is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and of whom I am the foremost. So I just had this moment while we were singing, just reminded of who I was before Christ and what a great thing it is to sing of a God that's so gracious that would bring me to where I am. So just wanted you to end on a little thing going on in my head while we were singing. Um, so welcome to that. But let me pray for us um, as, as we talk about this Jesus who came to save sinners. Father, thank you. Thank you that you did come to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. That there is nothing that I have done or could do to qualify myself to be your son. And there's nothing that I could do or can do to qualify myself to teach about you. But yet, I think you've revealed your grace to me in order that I may proclaim the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how I consider myself, Lord, as Paul writes, as a, as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And I pray, God, as we open up your word today and we look at what happened on the cross, we look at the atonement that Jesus provided, and how that has become the foundation on which we stand, the foundation of our faith. I pray, Lord, that you would speak. That you'd give me clarity of mind, clarity of words to proclaim Christ crucified this morning. Father, thank you that I, that I don't think it's coincidence that we get to worship and think about the ultimate sacrifice you made for us on the cross of Calvary today. Knowing that tomorrow our nation gets to celebrate, and what, a, what an odd word, we get to celebrate what we call Memorial Day a day where, where many in our country have given up their lives. They have sacrificed themselves for, for love of country and for the protection of our freedoms. And where we know being in this community, we know being in this church, there are many in this room that know names, that know stories, that know families who have been devastated by the loss of life for our military members. And I just pray, God, that as our country somewhat nonchalantly celebrates tomorrow, that you would be the great comforter of these families and of this community. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat for me this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And then I'm going to have to, we're going to do some biblical gymnastics, okay? So you're going you're gonna to hold your place at Isaiah chapter 6, and then you're going to flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2, okay? So we're going to be in both of those scriptures, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah I mean, Ephesians chapter 2. So uh, if you weren't here last week, let me kind of let you in on where we're at. So we, as a church, want to preach through books of the Bible. And in five weeks from today, we'll be picking up an Old Testament book that I'm starting to already geek out about. So I'm really excited to open that up with you and us to preach that together. Um, but we really thought that this provides us a unique opportunity, that summer kind of provides us a unique opportunity to make sure that we're, we're building on the same foundation, that we're all kind of moving from the same playing build or playing by the same playbook, so to speak. And what I'm aware of is being a church plant because we're what, nine months old now? I don't know. I don't know math. August. Last August, we planted. And, and what we know is that many people have come to our church who have not been in church in 30 years. Maybe never come to church. Maybe have no background of what this book is all about. 
We know of some people who, a lot of people who, who stopped going to church when this great pandemic kind of swept over in 2020. So it's been three years since you kind of got back into it. We know of a lot of people who have started coming to church from different denominations, different backgrounds, and just being such a hodgepodge group of people in this church plant. I just thought it's going to be wise for us to make sure we're building on the right foundation. That we're all playing from the same playbook that we know what we're talking about because we can continue to preach through books of the Bible, which we're going to. But do we all know what that foundation is, what that, that book is building on? And, and so that's, that's where we're at. Last week, we looked at the foundations of our faith. Colossi- I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul comes to the church in Corinth and says, I laid one foundation. There's only one foundation that is laid, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And what we saw last week is that when we hear the word gospel of Jesus Christ, usually we mean the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and I'm not trying to be blasphemous. That's not wrong. Okay, I'm actually going to spend the next 40 minutes talking about that. So that's not wrong. It's just that we've got to go deeper. There's got to be a step further because why did Jesus have to come? Why did he come to die? For our sin. Okay, yeah, wake up. Okay, we're getting coffees. For our sin. He had to, he had to come to die for our sin. But why is sin such a big deal? Why does sin require the death of God's own son, Jesus? And as we saw last week, it's because he is holy. And not only is he holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. So we're going to build on that. So if you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen. It's on our website. It's on Spotify. You can hear about the holiness of God. Today, we're going to look at the cross of Christ. Specifically, we're going to look at the atonement of Jesus. Okay? So I hope you went to Isaiah chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read that in a moment. I just tricked you. I'm not going to read it this second. I'm going to read it in a moment. But let me, let me set you up by, by saying this. As a father of four... I, I manage kind of our nighttime routines, and by manage, I mean it's total chaos, okay? But usually when they're finally in bed, one of them, without fail, is going to request that I tell them a story, okay? Any dads in the room? God, tell me a story. And without fail, it's usually one or two stories. When I ask, hey, what story do you want to hear tonight? They're going to give me one or two options. The first is, how did you meet mommy? They want to hear the story of how I met their mother, who is Annie. Or they want to hear the story of, of when we found out that we were pregnant with them, or the birth of them, okay, right? So this is kind of how it goes. As a good storyteller, I don't look at them and go, well, you know, give you a bunch of facts. I don't say, hey, I sat on the couch, left side cushion, six feet from the door when a bunch of girls came into our apartment. One was five foot seven, you know, brown hair. Blue. I, like, that's not what a storyteller does, right? You build it. You set the scene. You set the setting. You give the characters. You kind of give the tone. So I was in my apartment at the University of Georgia, which is the greatest university of all time. Okay. It's waiting for you guys. And, and my roommates had invited some friends over, and in walks one that just immediately caught my attention. And as I'm walking, watching her, she, she walks towards the kitchen because my roommate had made a pot of coffee, and she was going to get a cup of coffee. And, and she pulls her own coffee mug out of her backpack. Y'all kid you not. Amazing. I knew immediately this girl's got something. Okay, pulls her own coffee mug. And I overhear her telling the story of this coffee mug, how it's a special coffee mug. She had brought it from the African nation of Malawi where she had served all summer for Jesus. And I was like, I'm done, right? Beautiful coffee Jesus. We're in. That's all it took. But, you know, as I expand that story for my kids, inevitably a couple of things happen. As I share that story with my children, two things happen. A, they're invited into a story that's larger than themselves. Right? Invited into something that is bigger than them. Because just like my kids, you all, myself, are all tempted to think that the world revolves around who? Ourselves. That every story is about me. My story is the most important. But as I tell them that story, it invites them into a story that's bigger than them. That we actually had a story. They don't know this. We had a story long before they came around. 
right? And what we're trying to teach them is we got a story long after they leave, right? Okay, so that's them. We're inviting them to a story bigger than themselves. But second thing that happens as we're telling this story is that we start noticing they start kind of nuzzling a little bit more, like drawing a little bit closer, getting a little bit more cuddly. It's because their affections for our family are being stirred through that story. Church, what I want to tell you today as clearly as possible is that God has authored a story. And he has been telling the same story since the beginning of time that will do two things. It will invite you into a story that's bigger than yourself. And I promise you, if you hear the story and you understand the story, it will stir affections in you for the family of God. It will stir your affections for God. And y'all, I'm aware that many of you know this story. Many of you know the story of the gospel. You understand what Jesus has done for you on, your cro- on the cross. You've put your faith in that story. If that's you, please don't check out. Because Peter says in 1 Peter that he sees his responsibility as stirring you up by way of reminder. So if that's you, if you know I'm a Christian, I've put my faith in Christ, I understand the cross, hang in there because I want to stir you up by way of reminder. So that today, as we actually conclude with communion, and as you leave out of here today, you're more in love with Jesus at the end of this than you were at the beginning. Okay? But I also know just by sheer numbers, y'all, that there are people here who don't know this story. Or maybe have glimpses of this story or have never really put their faith in this story. And if that's you, y'all, hang in there because that can stir some new affections in you that will change your life. Just as it did for me when I was 18 years old. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8. We read that this story has, has, was written before the foundations of the world. Just hear these facts. This is amazing. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, we read that Jesus has come to tell us this story that has been hidden since the foundations of this world. Titus 1, 2, Paul says that the salvation that this story is all about was written before the ages began. Just as my kids, there's a story for Annie and I long before my kids came around. Long before you and I came around, y'all, there was a story that had been written in completion. Before the foundations of the world, it's just continuing to play itself out over and over and over again. So here's the story. And I'm going to take some of you back to English language arts class. How many of you like English and language arts? Oh, my gosh. You know, I was a math guy. Actually, I, I don't know what I was. I went to Georgia, and we played intramural sports. Okay, so here's what English language arts will tell you about a good story. For any good story, you have a plot line, right? God has designed it this way. And I'm going to share with you God's story on this plot line. And the story of God begins with the exposition, right? Remember what that is? It's the introduction. It gives you the primary characters. It begins to set the tone. It gives you the setting. Here's the exposition of God's story. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Long before the foundation of the world, God was there. The introduction of the first character in the story of God is who? God. Church, God is the primary character of this story. This story is primarily going to be about God. And this is the God, as we saw last week, that is not the God whoever we want him to be. He's not the God of whoever we wish him to be. He's not the God of who I am, whoever you think me to be, right? We have no right. I said this last week. We have no right to dictate who God is. God says, I am who I am, which is also his way of saying, I will be whoever I will be. He and he alone has the right to dictate who he is. He is God. There is no other. We spent all last week talking about that, okay? That's the primary character. And we saw last week that God is what? Holy. But not just holy. He is holy holy, holy. But all throughout the story of God, all throughout Scripture, we read other descriptors of God. Listen to some of these. Exodus 34, 6. 
It says he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm 147, verse 5, he is great and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And again, he's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. But in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, he was a holy creator. He created. Right? And I'm not going to quiz you on the first six days of creation, but I'll run through those real quick. Okay? God created. He created the heavens and the earth, day and night, waters and land, plants and vegetation, the sun and the moon, the animals of the sea and of the land. And in all of these things, the first five days of creation, God said, it is good. It's good. He says it's good. All things that I've created are good. But on the sixth day, something changed in this story. He created mankind. Male and female, he created them in the image of himself. So right now we have an introduction of a different created being. Everything of a creation was created just good. Mankind was created very good in the image of God, which means now there's a created being who actually reflect these attributes of who God is. And as this created being lives in submission to their creator God, and they rule and reign underneath their creator God, God says, I'll bless you. You'll be fruitful, you will multiply, and you will fill the earth. And as you fill the earth, that means the image of God will fill the earth. Right? You following me? And God says, it's very good. And y'all, it's very good because it was as God designed it to be. But it was also very good for us because when mankind at that time was walking in the presence of God, you know what they weren't feeling? Shame. There was no fear. There was no need to hide They were just totally vulnerable before their God. So as we talked about last week, God is holy, holy, holy. And he is totally unapproachable by us in our sin. But back then, in the exposition of this story, that didn't exist. God was holy, 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 yet totally approachable because there was no sin. Mankind was living in the very good design of God. No fear. They were able to approach their God. So we have the primary character, God. We have mankind as another primary character, but then we have the antagonist. Remember what the antagonist is? The bad guy. Genesis 3, the the, the antagonist of the story slithers into the minds of mankind. He begins to whisper deceit and lies to the minds of mankind and says, did God actually say, began to sow doubt into the image of God and say, did God actually say this? No, 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 no. You misheard. Don't settle for being in the image of God. You can actually be like God. You you can be equal with God. Don't settle. God's just holding out on you. There's more to life for you to experience. God is just holding out on you. And as he sowed those lies, y'all, they bought them hook, line, and sinker. And they rejected who God said he is. And instead, they took a mind of their own and they formed and fashioned a God of their own imagination. They took of that fruit and they ate. And the immediate consequences were felt. They were aware of their nakedness. And when I say nakedness, don't think you know, that way. I'm thinking vulnerability, T- total transparency. Immediately, they're aware of how different they are from God. That didn't exist before sin. Now they know they're aware. So instead of feeling just unashamed in the presence of God, delighting in the presence of God, mankind now feels shame and fear. So that when God comes walking through the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They hide. Get out of there. They hide because they cannot. Now, because of sin, they cannot be in the same room with a holy God who is now unapproachable because of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, our exposition concludes just like this. Genesis 3, 24. And God drove out the man. 
can't be with me anymore. Relationship is totally severed. There's now a gap. There's a distance between God and between mankind. And y'all, in the next section of our plot line here, it gets way worse. This story gets way worse. So you might know what comes next. Don't be scared. A little interaction this morning. A rising action. Oh, I'm going to start calling names on my English people. I saw you raise your hand. All right, rising action. The rising action of a good story is made up of a series of events that establishes the conflicts. It establishes the issues. It leaves us wondering, is this ever going to get any better? And y'all, it takes one chapter from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 for us to see, no, it is going to get way worse. In Genesis 4, murder enter into the hearts and and into mankind. Cain and Abel happen. Two chapters after that, in Genesis chapter 6, we read this. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did you hear that? Not just some thoughts, not just some intentions. The heart of mankind was totally destroyed. Romans says it like this, y'all, that mankind just suppresses the truth. We don't even want to hear it anymore. That our hearts have grown dark, that mankind's minds are futile, that we claim to be wise, but instead we're just fools, that we've been given up to the lusts and the impurities of our own hearts. We've exchanged the truth about who God is for a lie, and we worship and serve ourselves or gods that we create in our own imaginations rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, as Romans says. Now, this is bad. All throughout the Old Testament, you can read how bad this is. The, the intentions and the hearts of mankind is horrible. Church, in short, let me just conclude the rising action here. It ain't good. It is not good at all. All of mankind, not just Adam and Eve, all of mankind is now barred from the presence of God. There is a gap that exists between God and us, all because of sin. So now I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is kind of where we left Isaiah last week. If you were here, you remember that Isaiah has finally gotten a glimpse of how bad this is. Isaiah has begun to perceive how the consequences of his sin, and he sees a holy God, and he's undone before a holy God, knowing that he deserves death. So let's see what happens with Isaiah. If you weren't here last week, let me just read it for you. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Look at the response of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of sinful lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of sinful lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All right, pause with me for just a second. Church, Isaiah has perceived the depravity of his situation. He is finally aware of how desperate his sin is before such a holy God. He sees, y'all, that the angels themselves are unworthy to be in the presence of God. Unworthy. They're covering themselves. They're concealing themselves because they know I can't be here. So they're reminding themselves how holy God is. God doesn't need that reminder, right? They're calling out to each other. The angels are calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. God doesn't need to be reminded. He knows. They are concealing themselves before the holiness of God and reminding themselves of the holiness of God. And Isaiah gets a glimpse of this and what is exposed, how unworthy he is to be here. Immediately, he's aware of his sin. 
And he lays on his face and he says, woe is me. I am undone and I am unworthy to be here. And he knows this should cost me my life. The consequence of me seeing the holiness of God and also seeing how deep my sin runs cost me my life. Church, this is where Ephesians 2 comes in. All right, so got to do me a favor. Hold your spot in Isaiah 6. We're not going to leave Isaiah on the floor. We're going to come back to him. Ephesians chapter 2. It's so easy for us to read Scripture and think, this is just the story of Isaiah. Or this is just the story of Adam and Eve. This is just the story of Cain and Abel. It's just the story of Moses and the Israelites or David and Bathsheba. Paul is going to tell us, not mincing words, no, no, this is your story too. The story that God has been telling is actually story he's telling in your life as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Church, and you. If you came to terms with the truth of your own sin, you would begin to realize that you are undone. You are barred entry into the presence of God. You are unworthy to be in relationship with him. Look at verse 2. And in these sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that old antagonist, that spirit that is now at work, and the sons and the daughters of disobedience. Church, hear this. It's not just Adam and Eve that's susceptible to the lies of that snake. It's you and I. You and I. Or at one time, we're listening to him. Just as, the, as Satan was telling Adam and Eve, God's just holding out on you. There's more for you. Don't, don't settle for what God wants for you. You could actually be your own God. Just as Adam and Eve bit that hook, line, and sinker, we do it too. We follow the course of this, this world. We, we follow the lies of this antagonist. And look at verse 3. Paul's not mincing words, y'all. It's bad. And as we live among a world of of, of disobedience, among whom, verse 3, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Church, as we reject God and as we follow whatever Satan wants us to do, what, what Paul's saying is it's just what your flesh wants to do anyway. The sins that we partake in, it's just us following our own desires, our own flesh, our own thinking. God desires us, right, to deny our passion for lustful pleasures. We don't do that, do we? We, we? we go to them anyway because that's what I want to do. I don't care what God wants to do. God wants us to control our stress. This is an example for us. By resting in His sovereignty, right? That's what Scripture teaches, to rest that He is in control. That He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but we don't control our stress that way. What do we often do? And I'm not trying to call out anybody in particular, but y'all, we run to the bottle, Drinking way too often to mitigate our stress. Why? Because we want to do what I want to do. I don't want to rest in God's sovereignty. God controls, desires for us to control our anger, to control our jealousy, our strife, but we let it spew out physically, verbally, emotionally. Why? Because it feels better. It's what I want to do. It's not what God wants me to do. This is our plight, y'all. This is our plight. And even if you wanted to change it, and you read as many health, self-help books as you can to change it, you realize it's insufficient. It's not working. Your heart hasn't changed. It's not changing. Church, this is our situation. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says it pretty blatantly. He says, y'all, the works of the flesh are evident. 
The desires of your flesh, the desires of your mind, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me say it this way, y'all. You do such things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? He is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And in the state of our sin, you cannot inherit His kingdom. You cannot come back into that garden. You cannot be in relationship with God. And church, the only proper response at becoming aware of the rising action of this story in your life is the response of Isaiah. It is to hit your face and go, I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm unworthy to be here. I deserve to die for the sins that are in my life. But do we respond that way? In my experience, there, there's two responses that I see, and I, and I see these all throughout the Bible too. The, the first is we ignore it. right? We, we don't even want to become aware that that's how bad our situation is. So we just ignore it. And you think you're ignoring it, but Paul, through the inspiration of the Scripture, would say, no, 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 you're not, just, you're not ignoring it, you're just blind. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, your understanding has become so darkened because of how far, how alienated you are from God. You've gotten so far away from God, you can't even resuscitate yourself. He says your heart is calloused, it's, it's numb, you're blind, you're darkened in your understanding. Church, the only, the only solution, if that's you, if your heart is that numb towards God, is to get a glimpse of the glory of God like Isaiah did. The only way for you to be shocked back into feeling, it's like a, like a defib, right? Medical people in the room, you throw it on a dead heart. The only way you can be shocked into feeling how bad this rising action is in your life is to actually get a glimpse of the holiness of God, which is why we preached it last week. Do we see Him for who He truly is? But there's a second response that I see way more often, especially in the church, especially among Christians. It's to get a glimpse of how bad this is and then to try to fix it, right? That's what we do. We get a glimpse. We begin to realize. We come to terms. God is holy. I am not. There's a gap between us. So what do we do? We try to fix it. We try to bridge that gap in our own strength, in our own ways, this is what the churches all throughout the New Testament did. It's what Paul fought with in the churches. This is what we're fighting in our church. It's what we're fighting in the church in America. We try to fix it. We don't have a better, a good enough understanding of how good Jesus is. And I'm about to get to how good Jesus is. But we try to fix this situation. Look at Galatia. The church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. It says, but now that you have come to know God, now that you've actually come to get a glimpse of how good God is, how holy God is, how can you then turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. What's going on in the church of Galatia is that they have heard about this plight, and they think, maybe if I can observe certain days, if I can observe these days, these months, these weeks, these, these ritualistic observances, if I can follow those to a T, maybe then God will accept me. Y'all, I see this all the time. We, I, th- I see it in my own life. If somebody at your work or at your school asks you, hey, how do you know you're a Christian? Is this what you say? I go to church. We rely so often on that statement for the confidence that we're actually saved. We follow the observance of certain days and certain rituals, thinking that that's enough to bridge this gap. Y'all, it's not. 
This gap is too great. Your attendance here, if we kept it, every week is not sufficient for you. It's not good enough. You can't fix this gap. It's what the church in Colossians was facing. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to human regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It says these regulations, they have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of your flesh. All these don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that, that makes you look pious. It makes you look religious, but let me tell you, it is not sufficient to bridge this gap that your sin has created. Well, I mean, I don't drink. I'm not immoral with my spouse. I I don't cheat. I, I do pray. I do read the Bible. I mean, good gracious, man, I even tithe. It may not be 10%, but it's not. How often do we rely on the things that we do or the things that we don't do to provide confidence that we're actually saved? Church is not sufficient. The things that you do cannot fix this, but we do it all the time. We get a glimpse of how bad this rising action is in this story, and we try to fix it in in and of ourselves. Y'all, did you know that this is the essence of all world religions? This is the core of all religion. Islam, five pillars of Islam. If you follow the five pillars, maybe God will accept me. Hinduism, maybe if I can do enough good deeds, I'll wait my bad deeds, karma will catch up, and God will accept me. Judaism, if I follow the Torah to the T, maybe God will accept me, or he'll maybe accept me because I'm a son or a daughter of Abraham. New Age spirituality, which is the predominant religion in our culture in America, maybe if I meditate enough, contemplate enough, empty my mind itself, then God will accept me. Over and over and over and over again. This is it. This is religion. Religion is God is so far over here, and we are so distanced from God. I will do anything I can to get myself back to God. That is what religion is, but that is not what Christianity is. You ready to hear what Christianity is? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Church, this is the climax of the story. The climax is when the conflict gets resolved. It's when the hero gets the princess. It's when the dragon gets slayed, or in my case with my wife. It's when I finally worked enough courage up to overcome the rising action of my self-doubt and fear of rejection, right? And asked her out. It worked out. We're good. That's where you clap. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you so much. Here's the climax, y'all. The rising action of this story leaves us wondering, how will this gap ever be crossed? How will we ever get back to God? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Look up at me real quick. Y'all, these two words marks a stark contrast in this story. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, this rising action, all these rising actions, they can almost lead us to believe that mankind is the center of this story. It's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. I'm trying to get back, I'm trying to get back. And we begin to think that we are the center of this story. These two words remind us of who the hero is. These two words remind us of who the primary character is. And he steps back into the scene, but God. Keep reading with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. All right, now you got to pause again. Hold your spot here. Go back with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is on his face. He knows that he deserves to die. This rising action is horrible. His plight is terrible. He cannot bridge the gap that his sin has created between him and God. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You see what's going on here? Isaiah's on his face. He has a vision of the holiness of God. He knows he deserves to die. He knows he cannot approach God. He cannot come to God. So what does God do? He comes to Isaiah. But God comes to Isaiah at the command of God. A seraphim comes and touches Isaiah's lips, the exact place where Isaiah was revealed of his sin, the the perceived place of his sin. He touches his lips and says, you're atoned for. Your sins are atoned for. Isaiah couldn't do that. God did. You know what the word atone means? It means to cover. In Hebrew, it just means to cover. The distance between God and Isaiah was way too great. Isaiah couldn't cover it, but God did. God atoned. God covered it. Now, for the last time, let's flip back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, y'all, it's bad. You are by nature... Children of his wrath, like all of the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Guys, this God who is holy, 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 is also a God who is rich in mercy and great in love. And he has written a story. Do you see it? He has written a story in such a way that you walk away going, he is so holy. And he has written a story where you walk away going, he is so merciful and so loving. And in his mercy and in his love, y'all, he has atoned for you. You couldn't bridge this gap. Your sin has separated you from God to such a degree you couldn't fix it. But God, because of His mercy, because of His love, has covered it. He bridged this gap. He has sent Jesus on your behalf to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He has taken what He didn't deserve, but what you deserved. So that in bridging this gap, you get what you don't deserve. Are you following me? You couldn't do this for yourself, but... God. Romans 8 verse 3 says, God has done what the law weakened by your flesh could never do. By the sending of his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But God. Church Christ, by dying on the cross for you, has atoned for your sin. He has covered your sin. He's covered your sin. He's covered the consequences of the sin, your sin. He has covered the payment of your sin. Right, Your sin has built up into such a debt that you owe to God that you could never pay it, ever. Jesus stepped in and said, I got it, I'll cover it. I'll pay that debt. Your sin has, has earned yourself a consequence, which is death, physically, spiritually, for all of eternity. Jesus stepped in at the last minute and said, no, 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 not them. I'll, I'll, I'll die that death. I'll cover it. Your sin has left you in a position where the only thing you can do is to drink the cup of God's wrath. All throughout the Old Testament, it's this cup. His wrath has been boiling up into this cup, and everybody who is in sin has to drink that cup. Jesus came and said, no, 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 not them. I'll drink that cup. I'll cover it. Jesus took it all for you. All because of God. Nothing that you could do. He's atoned for your sins, y'all. And listen to this. Once you become aware of that story, 
And you say yes to that story. You step into that larger story. Listen to what happens because of Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 18. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Church, do you hear that? That at one time, right, you are totally separated from God. God cannot be approached by you, but now He has bridged the gap. He has come to you. So now you're covered in Christ. Covered by Christ. So now that you're covered in Christ, you can freely walk right back into the presence of God. That relationship has been totally restored because of what you've done? No, because of what He's done. Church, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. He has written such a story that he as the primary character is the hero. He is the hero. Ephesians 1 says that this story has taken place to the praise of his glorious grace. When you're aware of all Christ has done for you, you know you cannot come before him and go, I deserve this. I've earned this. Look at what I've done. No, no, you come because you're on your face and you go, thank you for having me here. It's all because of your mercy. It's all because of your love. It's all because of your grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and I'll close with this. He says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Church, just as there's only one proper response to the awareness of your rising action, which is Isaiah's response, right? Hitting your face, saying, I am undone, I'm worthy of death. That's the only proper response when you come to an awareness of your sins. There is only one proper response when you come to the awareness of the cross. Only one. When you come to the awareness of of what the atonement of Jesus means, it's found in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Your response, church, is faith. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never thought, this is for me and I believe it, all is required of you today is faith. Faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing that what Jesus has done for you is true and that he did it for you. Faith is just accepting the fact that He has covered you. Not saying, okay, I see what you've done, but, but let me try some more things. Let me try to work around. No, no, faith is laying on your face and going, I will accept your covering as I come back into the, the presence of God. It's really not hard, but it leaves us going, that just seems a little too good to be true. Duh. Yo, that's the point. God has written a story in such a way that you couldn't do anything. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. He gets all the praise. It is to the praise of His glorious grace that we have been saved. This is how we're going to conclude this morning. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, this is all we mean. This is what Paul means. That foundation is that God is holy, holy, holy. And that foundation is that your sin is bad. And not only is the action of your sin bad, but the consequences and the penalty of your sin is bad to the point where you do not deserve to be in relationship with God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he sent Jesus to die for you so that you can now live with God. You following me? That's the foundation. That's the foundation of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've put your faith in that message, you know without a shadow of a doubt my conviction is in what Christ has done for me. I pray that as you take communion today, that it stirs up some new affections for you. 
I pray that as you, you hold that bread and you hold that cup and, and we let Will play a little bit behind us, that you, it, just, it just wells up in you some gratitude for what Christ has done for you. But if you're not a Christian, church, why, why not just say yes today? You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to do anything. The only thing you need to do is go, yeah, I accept that. That's what Jesus has done for me. And once you do, what you will find is what my kids found in that story. You'll find new affections. You'll find that your heart has been changed. Far from being a defibrillator, you would have a heart transplant. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new spirit. And the things that are really hard, when you know I should do what God wants me to do, but I can't do it, you'll begin to realize that's a lot easier now because His Spirit will live within you. You'll be totally changed and transformed. So if you're serving communion this morning, I'd love to go ahead and make your way to that place. We're going to be handing this out.